Welcome, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Lambert. I'm the junior warden here at the cathedral. We have been looking at uh, biblical justice, framework for biblical justice over the last few weeks. A couple weeks ago, a guy from Memphis, a scholar named Michael Rhodes, came in and talked about economic justice. Um, some of us have his book and we're reading it. Are you reading? Did you start it? <laughs> uh, some of us have started it. It is, um, it's, it's heavy and it's, there's a lot in it. So, and I'm enjoying it, but um, like other teachers, we've got lots to read, so I'm kind of going through it slowly. But he started with a framework for economic justice based on the Old Testament. He talked about a couple of things, which we're going to reiterate in a minute. We'll review them. And then last week, Patrick took what Michael Rhodes couched from the Old Testament and applied it with the New Testament and Jesus applying all of those things um, to with in both his ministry and in the foundation of the church as the church moves forward, that the church is to carry out those Old Testament um, laws that are particularly concerned with justice, economic justice, but also that economic justice then turns into all sorts of other, all sorts of other justice, um, um, you know, um, situa- uh, situations in which we are to show justice and mercy. So, let's we'll jump in and we'll just we're going to today now start with we're going to back up a little bit. We've gotten the Old Testament foundation, New Testament. Um, reiteration of the Old Testament foundations for justice and mercy and now we're going to um, we're going to jump back into the Old Testament and look at one particular and I would argue the best particular ethical framework for doing justice and that is the Ten Commandments we're going to specifically hone in on the Ten Commandments and how they are in my opinion the best possible ethical system for human flourishing. Whether you're a Christian or not, I'm going to make the case that the Ten Commandments are the best possible um, framework for justice, even if you're an atheist. And we're going to take the Ten Commandments and we're going to tweak them a little bit so that even if your friends are atheists or from another religious perspective, that they could still accept the Ten Commandments as an absolutely good framework for both justice and human flourishing. And when your friends get out of, uh, bend out of shape, when some judge someplace hangs the Ten Commandments in a courtroom, you can very easily say, why are you bent out of shape? You love every single one of the Ten Commandments, and you use them and implement them in your life. And uh, I'll make the case for that in, in, uh, toward, the end of the, toward the end of this morning. Okay, so, um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look, there are many verses we're going to go through this morning, and I'll need people to volunteer and... Jump in and read. But let's start with 1 John 5, 17. Or excuse me, 1 John um, 5, 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, in those short little verses, 
What is John claiming about God's law? He makes a pretty bold claim that a lot of us don't live out. What does he claim about God's law? Okay, well, yeah, one, you got to obey it. But I think he's making also, on top of that, he's making a claim about obeying it. Anybody see? Uh, end of verse three. It's not burdensome. It should be easy. We don't make it easy. We make it difficult. We make excuses. We, um, we you know, uh, we yeah, but a lot of things in our lives, right? Yeah, but he, he made me mad. Yeah, but um, that's not my personality, right? I'm type A. Yeah, but we excuse our sin with all sorts of things, our gender, our personality, right? And yet John is claiming that God's commandments are not burdensome. It should be easy. It should be liberating, in fact, if we're going to keep his commandments. Obeying God's law should be easier than we make it because it is absolutely, uh, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, it is a reflection of God himself. And when we keep the law, we are acting like God. We are acting like, even like his Messiah. Uh, And we can then also see the converse of that question. That's exactly why we don't make it easier than it should be. God's commands are not burdensome. They're the best possible framework for human flourishing. And yet, we're not Jesus. We're not the Messiah. So we don't keep the law very well. But if we're going we're to start there, we're going to assume that John is right. We're going to assume that God's law is not burdensome. It is liberating. And it should set us up for something that we don't, um, we don't often consider. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, what you're about to go through is exactly what I do with my students in uh, my ethics class at First Baptist. Uh, what you're, I've added a little bit to, to um, review and to tie in the last two weeks from Michael Rhodes and Patrick. But what you're about to go through is exactly what I, um, I demand of all of our students and what they, what they learn and what they're tested on. Um, so tell me if it's too hard because the last test was not good. What great, what great uh, uh, seniors, okay. seniors. Yeah, so it's not, it's not freshmen. It is a little more advanced, right? Okay, so Michael Rhodes. Michael Rhodes, uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Michael Rhodes um, urged us to consider how we as a church, even if we're not as a, a community, even not as a state, not as a city or a country, and certainly Israel didn't do it either. But if, if we don't keep Jubilee on a macro level, how are we as a church to exhibit God's Jubilee laws um, in our community? Uh, and he, um, he challenged us in a bunch of ways. And he um, delineates some of those ways in his book. It's, it's fantastic. If you want to borrow my copy when I'm finished, I'd be happy to pass it on. We can pass it around. I think Patrick has a copy. Hope you got a copy. Um, Jubilee, what was it? Just a review, who was here, and what's the, or who knows, what, is, what was the jubilee in the Old Testament? Every seven years, and that your debt must be given, and, and everything was, was made equal again. Okay, so it, the, um, on, a small, on a smaller scale, every seven years, land and property revert back to original owners, debt's forgiven. What happens every 50 years? 
Bayroom. Every, and every 50 years, there was a, a, a massive wipeout of, of all debt. Um, every seven years, also along with the land reverting back, the land also got a Sabbath, which is also interesting in the Jubilee. You plant crops and you rotate them for six years. And in the seventh year, you let the land rest. We're not very good at that either. Um, some folks did it. What were the gleaning laws? Anybody remember? Thank you, Sue. Farmers left the outskirts of the crops so that people who were, so, you know, um, indigent, um, uh, unemployed, uh, extremely poor, they could go in, they could glean extra food and supplies for their family. Um, they, the farmers were specifically and explicitly not to profit on everything from which they could have profited. They were specifically to leave some behind. And this is not my profit. This benefits the entire community and people who cannot provide everything that they need for themselves. They can glean from my prosperity. They can glean from the good provision that God, that God has given us. Right? Okay, so Michael Rhodes set us up with the Jubilee and gleaning laws. I would also add for, um, and I do this for my students, I would then also add God's hospitality laws on top of Jubilee and on top of the gleaning laws. God has some very specific things to say about our hospitality to each other and to people that we don't know. So on top of Jubilee and gleaning laws, let's also um, add hospitality laws. Will somebody look up these verses? Um, who wants to get Levi, uh, or excuse me, Leviticus 19? Hope, thank you. Deuteronomy 14. Somebody, thank you, Beth Webb. And we'll skip Deuteronomy 23, maybe. I'll get that one. Uh, somebody else, Genesis 18. Thank you, sir. Okay, Leviticus. Leviticus 19. Is that you, Hope? Sojourner, traveler comes in, you treat them like a native. You treat them like they're your neighbor. You treat them like they're one of you. They are an Israelite. You have to give them everything that you need. And you see some really weird hospitality rituals carry out in different places. Leviticus 19, Judges 19, they're both, they end up in these, these tragic circumstances that are gross. Um, they're not PG-13, um, but go read them. Their their hospitality laws misunderstood and misapplied. These people go over the top to be hospitable, and yet in the end, the people aren't cared for. The people are exploited, and um, they end up dead, right? They don't understand a right and a just view of other people's bodies. They don't understand a right and just view of other people's needs and the provision that we are to provide to them and their bodies. But traveler comes in, traveler comes into your town. What are you to do? Treat him like a native. Deuteronomy 14, uh, 28, 28. Thank you, Beth Webb. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your 
So there we have, it's almost like the gleaning laws, the hospitality law. Every three years you take all this extra, you come and you, you put it in a pot and anybody that needs some can come and, and get it. Um, the Levite especially, right? The Levites, the tribe that were the priests, the tribes that were the, the tribe that specifically took care of the tabernacle and then the temple and all the stuff that, that goes into it. They weren't allowed to make any money. They weren't allowed to keep the ranches. They weren't allowed to farm. They were only supplied by the other tribes. And every three years, uh, the extra, the bounty gets put out. But it's not just Levites. It's also the sojourners. It's also the poor. It's also the fatherless. Anybody who needs it. Um, and real quick, is it the next couple of verses? Beth Webb, read the next two verses. So it's tying in the hospitality to your neighbor directly with that, that release of debt. Uh, this is... That next verse is interesting. The very next one. Okay, go ahead, Debbie. From a foreigner, you may exact it, but you can't show release whatever of yours is with your brother. Whatever of yours is with your brother. But from a foreigner, you may exact it. So it's sort of body of Christ-ish. <laughs> <laughs> sort of body of Christ-ish? Um, Hang on, uh, this is, this is um, Deuteronomy 20. I put this in blue because this is a little bit different. It's not just, it's not a law, but this is, um, this is punitive. This is a punishment for those who don't keep the hospitality laws. Deuteronomy 23.3, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you they did not meet you with bread and water they did not consider your bodies as neighbors and they did not meet what you needed with their with their bounty so the Moabites and the Ammonites are prohibited from entering into uh, the assembly of the Lord there, so there you have a prohibition. Uh, Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mammon, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the, door, from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three says of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man, who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So look at the, now this is Abraham carrying out this, this hospitality ritual. This is Abraham carrying out the hospitality laws. 
He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't vet them. He doesn't find out whether they're not going to use any of his provision for drugs or alcohol, right? He just runs out of his tent and he sees these travelers and says, eat with me, right? He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know that they're God. He doesn't know uh, that, you know, um, a lot of scholars even think this is a a pre-incarnate Christ showing up eating with Abram under an oak tree, right? He doesn't know any of that. He just tells everybody in his family and entourage to get to work and make this meal. And it's not quick. We read it quick. It's only eight verses, but they've got to bake, they slaughter, they cook. I mean, it takes a while. And in the meantime, they're hanging out with these two, right? The hospitality rituals are important and they're, they're, they're involved. It's not easy. There's a lot that goes on. And yet we're called to it. We're called to release debt. We're called to not profit so that other people can partake, right? And this is something that we haven't taught very well in the church. We teach self-denial, but it's not self-denial for self-denial's sake. It's self-denial so that other people can enjoy what I enjoy. I do get to enjoy good food. I do get to enjoy uh, good places, right? But I don't do it um, only at the expense of other people. I give up so that other people can partake in the goodness that I enjoy, Right? And then, so on top of that, grounded in all of that, you've got, you've got this, this radical hospitality to people that we don't know. We're called to help the traveler. We're called to help the immigrant. We're called to help people that anywhere we see them, everyone is our neighbor, anyone who has needs. And um, last week, Patrick went through a bunch of um, examples of Jesus and the disciples doing just that. Jesus and the disciples giving to everybody as soon as somebody asks them. Give to anybody who asks from you. Don't vet them. Don't worry about it. I'll do that. You can vet people in your church, right? You can vet people in your community. We invite them in. We give them everything that we need. Then we call them to account. Thessalonians, you don't work in the church. You don't eat, right? You don't get to partake in the potluck, as Michael Rhodes has said. You're going to contribute. You're going to bring. It's not a soup kitchen. It's a potluck. And everybody gets to contribute. And if you don't, you don't partake. But we don't do that at first. At first, before we know people, we just go out and we meet needs. And we'll, we'll, we call them to account after that. So to sum it all up, um, just as a way to help remember, tying in the Old Testament with the New Testament, Right? Jesus is the jubilee. Jesus is the, the clean slate. Jesus is the reset. And as Gentiles, we get to glean it. Right? We, get to, we get to partake in, in all of that. Okay. So setting up a really simple frame. That's a review from the last couple of weeks. Um, you are not required to know this. I will not quiz you on this, but these are the, these are the three main ethical schools that, uh, you know, in the academy that ethicists um, like to, like to um, lump people into. Now, a Christian is all three. If you're a Christian, you are deontological, you're teleological, and you're existential. And you don't have to know what those mean, but just real quick to help you remember them. If you want to know them, this is what we do in in ethics classes. Dion means duty. Telos means end or goal. And existentialism exists, right? If you can remember those, duty, goal, exist, you understand deontology, teleology, and existentialism. A deontologist 
follows a code, right? Samurai code. I saw somebody walking around town yesterday with a shirt, pirate code, uh, bro code, girl code, right? We've all got these little codes that we live by. Um, so you're living by a code. I will not... I will not abandon these principles. I will not contradict these principles. Right? And you can see how a Christian is deontological. What is the code by which we live? Scripture. The scriptures. Right? Sola scriptura. Right? You can even sum it up. And we're going to sum it up even further than that. Right? The, the Decalogue, which is the academic term for the Ten Commandments. Teleology. An end or goal. A teleologist seeks the right, or the, the right goal according to them. Right? Utilitarianism, you've all heard this term, utilitarianism. What is, um, utility means use. What is the most use for the most people? This is most politicians, right? That's their end goal. What's the greatest good for the greatest number? And the good that people usually go after is their own happiness. Lots of critiques, breaks down very easily. You can, you can critique it on your own. But how is a Christian also teleological? What's our goal, what's our end? Um, on this side of glory, sanctification, ultimately we also have a further goal, right? Salvation and bringing other people into that salvation. And then and along the way, right, we are, we are um, seeking to be sanctified. A lot of people would, would put that, Don, in existentialism, right? The right inner character, I'm acting like Christ. How can I act more like Christ in this situation? So I'm seeking to act like Christ, I'm seeking to bring people into the kingdom, and I'm seeking to obey God's code. Christians are all three simultaneously. It is the most sophisticated ethical system that you can find. You will find other grand ethicists and moral philosophers out there, Aristotle, um, Immanuel Kant, John Rawls. The most sophisticated ethicists are usually just one or two, but Christians should be all three, and we should consider all three all the time. It's the most consistent and um, uh, not necessarily complicated, but sophisticated ethical system that there is. Jesus is all of them. Jesus adhered to the code. He cared about people's end. People were the end. People were the goal, right? And he sought, his, in his own inner character, he sought to exhibit God the Father and God the Father's will, not his own will. And that's our goal. How can we exhibit God to our neighbors? Everyone, any questions so far? Yes, ma'am. I, I, I just want you to explain to me how this um, fits into the whole relational thing of loving God. Because I think that's what we're trying to do. These are, these are the secular ways that ethicists have sought to talk about justice. And we are, I'm, our goal, if we're going to really seek justice, economic justice, um, you know, uh, relational justice, if we're really going to seek the, the good and the prosperity of the disenfranchised and the poor and the fatherless around us, right, um, we are going to, what's the best possible way to do that? And Christians argue about it all the time, right? Our, our, we're arguing about it nonstop right now. Uh, social media is full of these of petty little arguments, right? When um, a, a major Christian writer dies, which we had a few months ago 
in a, a, a woman named Rachel Held Evans, right? She's a little liberal for a lot of people, and they attack everything about what she said. And then other people latch on, and she's very social justice, right? How in the world should Christians act toward their neighbor, right? And so the, we are seeking to set up a framework for um, a biblical view of justice and how to treat our neighbors. This is just a real quick look at the secular ways that um, people in the academy, that moral philosophers have broken it up, right? Because they're not, that, they're not nearly as sophisticated as Jesus the Christ. Immanuel Kant, one of the, the most important writer, influenced everybody, right? All of us had to read him. Not nearly as sophisticated as Jesus. In three short years, Jesus sets up the, you know, the most sophisticated and best framework for human flourishing. And he, shows how to, he showed how to live it um, at coming out of God's Old Testament laws with Jubilee, gleaning, and hospitality laws all wrapped up in the Ten Commandments. So this is just an introduction to how moral philosophers think about it and how people talk. But we are going to be all three. The Ten Commandments are all three simultaneously. Um, all right. Now, the Ten Commandments. So this is for my students. The Decalogue, right? That's the fancy term for the, the Ten Commandments. Why was it given? What's the context in which it was given? And you all, you, you all know this, right? They're, they're, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. They've been out there for a while. They're grumbling. And Moses goes up to get a framework for how they're to live while they're out there in the wilderness, not back in Egypt. And they were complaining about everything, right? Why are we not back in Egypt? Why are we not still slaves? We had pomegranates. Slavery plus pomegranates is great, right? And Moses and Aaron and Miriam are, are just shaking their heads and hashtagging everything while they're complaining about the Israelites, right? So the, think about the framework, uh, the context in which the Ten Commandments are given. They're wandering through the wilderness. Moses goes up to get a framework for how to treat each other and the people that they're going to come across. How are they to treat other people while they're traveling, while they're sojourners? So um, let's, talk about, let's look at some summaries of the law. Before we dive in specifically to the Ten Commandments, what are some, these are some summaries of God's law. Uh, who wants Deuteronomy 6? Anybody? I need, we need Deuteronomy. All right. Thank you. Uh, Jordan, you get Leviticus 19. Matthew 22. Who wants that one? Thank you, Sue. Romans 13. John 13. Thanks, uh, Quentin. I'm going to get Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. You all know that. The love chapter. We're going to not read that whole thing. So <clears throat> I'll read that one. All right, Deuteronomy 6.5. These are just how God sums up the law. This is from the complete Jewish Bible. It says, and you are to love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, all your being, and all your resources. All your heart, all your being, and all your resources. The complete Jewish Bible. I love it. Yeah, that, that's great. And we've all heard it with our own versions. Love the Lord all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? About resources tying into Michael Rhodes. Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love the Lord. 
Oh, sorry. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22. All the law and the prophets are on these two. Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. The first four of the Ten Commandments, love God. The last six, love your neighbor. Jesus sums it up really quickly. Uh, Romans 13. So and there you see explicitly, specifically, Paul goes into the Ten Commandments as an ethical perspective on love. Love your neighbor means you're going to keep the Ten Commandments when you deal with them. You're going to you're going to love them the way God instituted in in the law. Um, read we read eight again. And that's, that sums up what we said just a minute ago, where we give to anybody who asks of us without vetting them, and then later we can call them account, right? Don't owe anybody anything in your community except love. Outdo one another in generosity and love, but don't owe anybody anything. Pay your debts, right? We can hold, we, we do hold each other to account when, when we do owe people. We are to pay back what we owe them. Uh, John 13, and then I'll read a couple. Thank you, Quentin. And then this one, this is um, Paul writing to the Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, all, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Right? And then he goes on um, the, the rest of the chapter, which we've all heard countless times at weddings, right? Which, um, sure, it's a good application of the love chapter, but it's a lot more difficult when you're not going to, you're, you're not marrying this person who is dolled up in the, you know, and looking their, the best they're ever going to look, right? And like they've got 50, 100 people doting on them all day, right? It's a lot harder to love somebody um, with that sacrificial love when they're on a street and they don't smell like your bride, when they don't, uh, when they don't look like your bride, right? Um, we, we apply it to weddings, which is great, but... Can we apply it to our neighbor? Can we apply it to um, people in our own church that bug us? Can we apply it to the people who ask us for the same stuff over and over and over again? Can we keep giving in that sacrificial love? A um, couple of others. Micah 6.8. You know Micah 6.8, right? Um, 
What does God command but? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, right? Um, and there are, there are a couple of others. Um, James one twenty seven. religion that is pure and undefiled is this. What is it? Do you remember? Something about widows. That's right. That's good enough. Something about widows. Yeah, care for the widows and the orphans and to keep yourself unstained from the world. We care for people. This is pure religion. Care for people that need to be cared for. Care for their bodies. It doesn't matter if you know them. And also, care for your doctrine. Both go hand in hand, right? Jesus confounds all of our uh, political parties and all of our political philosophy. Love your neighbor as yourself is a radically liberal idea. That is radically difficult. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, most conservatives have no idea how to, how to apply that. Worship God in spirit and in truth is a radically conservative idea that progressives have no idea how to apply. Jesus confounds all of our political philosophies and our ethical perspectives, right? If we're going to apply them in a real and concerted way, they both, they go hand in hand. Love your neighbor as yourself and keep your doctrine unstained from the world. It's not easy. All right, so for, just for the sake of, of time, we'll move along. Um, this is a way that I, help, I want my students to think about it. Um, it's very difficult for people to think about God's law as something other than this arbitrary list of do's and don'ts that God just picks out of a hat, right? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, uh, don't murder. Well, like, what else can I get that's really going to get to them? This will be good, right? Don't steal, right? It's not, it's not a list of arbitrary things that are applied simply because God, um, just because God randomly picked them. Think about God's law as a reflection of God himself. If I'm keeping God's law, I am acting like Jesus. You want to be in the Trinity? It's very easy. You want to be God? All you got to do is keep the Ten Commandments perfectly and then stretch that out over eternity. Keep the Ten Commandments um, without any stain or blemish for all eternity and you're, you're Jesus, right? That's what it's like to be in the Trinity. It's God's character. It's God's mind. When we, when we exhibit this justice and mercy and love to people, we are acting like God himself. We are his representatives. Um, my students have to, in English class, they read Euthyphro. Does everybody, read, does everybody remember Euthyphro? Uh, Plato's Euthyphro dilemma. Euthyphro is this, um, the, the big question is, are things good because God says they're good? Or are, does God demand are things good because, um, because they are a reflection of God, right? Does God say that things are good because they're inherently good? Or does God just pick things to be good and that's what's good? And that's, that was Plato's real dilemma. Um, so like, um, you know, um, torture. If God said tomorrow that torture is good, does torture then become good? Or is torture inherently bad? That's the thought experiment that you're asked to consider. And my, our students have to read it in English class, so then we apply it in ethics um, in this, this crossover project. Right? Um, but if you think about it this way, right, the answer to Euthyphro is, very simply, that God says things are good because they're good, because they are a reflection of him. God 
is acting out those things, not simply because he picked them arbitrarily. God is acting out those things because they are his character. And he actually cannot contradict those things. He tells us in his word, I cannot lie. I cannot sin. I cannot act in a way that I am not. Right? God is not omnipotent in the way that we think of omnipotence. There are, you can make up all sorts of little um, you know, parlor games, philosophical parlor games. Uh, can God create a rock so big that even God can't lift it? Right? If, if, when we talk about God's omnipotence, we, we like to play around and we like to, we like to um, kind of skirt around the real issue. But God blatantly says, I cannot sin uh, and I cannot contradict my own character. That's what sin is. Sin is a contradiction of God's mind. It's God's, the way God thinks, God's essence. So when you keep the law, you're not keeping something that got arbitrarily picked. You're acting like him. And that's the Ten Commandments. Okay. Who can tell me all ten in order? Who knows the Ten Commandments? No one's raising their hand. Who thinks they can get all ten out of order? No one's making eye contact. Everyone look down. You can do it, Beth, in order? Out of order, maybe? We're going to skip all this. Um, one of the... <clears throat> Oh, wait. This is so cute. Do you know the song? Please do the dance. Get up here in the aisle. There is a song, and my students actually, um, most of them already know the song. If they, were, if they go through our elementary school, they, they knew the song already. Great. That is great. Number one. Who knows number one? No other gods, right? No gods before me. And that covers all of idolatry. Um, but I, one of the things that I want to do, I'm going to walk through these pretty quickly. We all know the Ten Commandments. We've all heard a bunch of sermons on them. We've all picked them apart. And we all have applied them in different ways. But I want to now challenge us into thinking how unethical we are. And I want us to think about how much we break all 10 all the time. Uh, I'm going to give you an example with one of my sins. And I want to show how that one violation of one of the commandments breaks all 10 commandments. Anytime you sin, you don't break one commandment. You break all 10 simultaneously. Right? So let's say that I lie to my wife. I lie to Amy about taking out the trash. If I lie to her, she yells at me. She's in the other room. Did you get the trash? It's trash night. And I just say, yes, I got it. But I didn't, right? She's at the other end of the house. And the garbage is at this end by the garage. I can very quickly get to it, take it out before she ever gets out of the bathroom, right? I can do 18 other things before she gets out of the bathroom. So I just lie to her and I say, yeah, I got it. And then I go do it, right? In that moment, who was my God? There was not God yeah, me, maybe Amy, right? I'm more afraid of her than I am of, definitely more afraid of her than I am my God, right? I've broken the first commandment along with don't lie, which is what number? Do the fingers. She's getting to it. It's down at the bottom. Number nine, right? So I've broken number nine along with uh, number one. She was my God in that moment. 
Number two, so all sin is rooted in a false god competing for our loyalty. Commandment number two. Anybody remember? So you did get it. Now, and this one's kind of tricky. We say making other gods, right? But this is also, in a way, it is um, making God into something that he's not. Remember in Sinai, when Moses is up on the mountain, he's up there for a month. He's up there for 40 days. And what did the Israelites do in the meantime? They're grumbling. They're like, come on, what's going on? Where is he? And what did they do? They make a golden calf. But when they bow down to it, what do they call it? Yahweh. They call it Yahweh, right? Now, a calf represents a lot of things in the ancient world, but it certainly does not represent everything that God is, right? It, there is so much more to uh, the Trinity than one calf can represent. So commandment two is more than idolatry. It is turning God into something that he's not. It is worshiping this graven image. It's fashioning a little God that makes me comfortable. It's fashioning this little God that I... that that wouldn't mind if I lie to my wife, right? It's a little God that wouldn't mind my dishonesty or my misrepresenting myself to her. It's fashioning or making God into something that he's not or something that I want him to be because it makes me comfortable. And we all do this with different doctrines. We make God into something that makes us more comfortable than uh, that makes us comfortable first and challenges us maybe somewhere down the line. So when I lie to her, I have fashioned this God that wouldn't mind my, my little white lie or my misrepresentation. Commandment three, do not use the Lord's name in vain. Not talking about cussing, although that's definitely in there in lots of places, right? You'll be held to account for all of our careless words. Um, but it's the Hebrew is actually um, wearing it like clothing. Are you claiming to be somebody, part of Yahweh's and then not acting like it? Um, and you can see how I would break number three when I lie to Amy about the trash. Number four, keep the Sabbath, right? Commandment four demands a godly use of all of our week. Am I using my time wisely? Am I working when I work and resting and worshiping when I'm to rest and worship? Am I ordering my life so that I don't have to lie to her about getting the trash? I've already gotten it because I've ordered myself. I'm disciplined and I'm taking care of my responsibilities when she's taking care of hers. So I've broken the fourth commandment. Also in that, I'm also in that moment, I'm not using my time wisely, not for truth, not for admission, not for confession. I'm using it to misrepresent myself, which is also breaking number three. Number five. Honor your father and mother. So how do I break this one when I lie to Amy? Now, some of us don't have parents. Some of us are honoring our parents is, a different, is different because we're not young kids, right? We're not in their house. Um, but we care for them. We love them. We also um, we represent them. But it also can be applied to all authority. Anybody in authority over us, parents had much more authority in the lives of people in the ancient world and the the reverence and the honor of of both parents and elders in the ancient communities was much different so this is a this is a dishonoring of all authority and amy absolutely does have authority in my house and absolutely can't tell me to take out the trash right and i dishonor that authority in that lie all 
Um, my students hate this one, because especially when it deals with both the classroom and the administration and the dress code, which they absolutely hate. Oh, wait. Did we skip six? Where's, where's six? Hold on. You, you want to skip that one? Um, oh, I just want this huge. There we go. Okay, there's six. I don't know why it didn't show up as my, I was clicking through. Commandment six, right? Murder. Disrespect for life. It's not just taking a life, but how do I view all of life? And when I lie to Amy, how am I, dis, I'm disrespecting um, not just her authority, but I'm disrespecting um, the a view of her life that would honor it and promote it. Let's see if I can now get back to seven. Adultery. Now, in a lot of places, especially in Ephesians 5, adultery is both, um, it's both um, figurative and literal. But it's also, especially for people, I mean, if you're not, I, I've heard this from more than one church. You'll have to worry about adultery when you're married. Right? If you're single, you don't have to worry about adultery right now um, and because you can't possibly break it. And I actually heard, I didn't go to that church for very long. Um, it's a horrible application of adultery. Right? It's a horrible application of a view of other people's bodies that hospitality laws call us to. Right? Adultery applies all over the place. I am, I do have a special relationship with my wife but I also have a special relationship with everyone's body. I am to care for everyone. I am absolutely to see that your body is cared for and that it's nourished, that it's protected, and that it's loved, right? And I am, um, it's not just an application when, when you're married. And I'm not to exploit it. I'm not to steal from it. I am not to view it as something that is a means to an end. It is the end. It is the goal. I am to be teleological with your, with your body. But in that moment when I lie to her, I am longing for a different type of wife. I'm longing for one that maybe won't nag me about the trash. I'm longing for one that, you know, that won't be so, that won't be so um, uh, demanding, right? Even though it's not demanding at all. And it's me honoring the authority that she's got in our house. It's me honoring her body. It's me honoring all of the things that we need to do to order, to order our lives. Um, am I longing for a different type of spouse or am I longing for a different type of relationship in that moment, right? Um, and adultery can be applied uh, across the board. And we'll get into this one more specifically, I think, in a couple of weeks with Patrick. Um, number eight, stealing, right? Stealing God's honor, disrespecting God's placement of resources for our stewardship. This is really hard for our students to, to apply. A lot of us, we say, you know, we, we, don't, we don't steal property, but we do, um, we do help other people. We do help other people in this. Do we respect all property and do we view it as not mine? Do we view it like, remember everybody, Les Mis, anybody seen Les Mis or read it? Remember when, um, like when uh, he's stolen from, right? He, he tells them he forgot this other stuff. My students, they can't, they can't. If somebody's, yeah, the silver candlesticks, right? 
and uh, you apply it to an iPhone, it becomes a lot different thought experiment, right? If they steal your iPhone, did you say, hey, you also forgot my headphones, right? And the kid's like, no. Um, but in, in, in lying to my wife, right, I'm stealing that, that honor. I'm stealing from her authority. I'm stealing from my commitment, right? Um, number, oh, and then number nine, lying. We can skip that one. I, obviously, I lied to her. And then coveting, wanting what is not yours. All sin is a desire for something that's not, that's not God. What are we desiring in that moment when we sin? All sin is longing for, um, for something that is not a reflection of God and his law. Now, we've run out of time, but as a framework for justice, I would want us to consider we've got Christ in the law. Actually, um, we read every single one of those with Patrick last week. We didn't even discuss it. Acting ethically or doing justice is being Christ-like. The Decalogue is a picture of Jesus. He lives out the Decalogue perfectly. Um, it, it shows us how perfect he is. It shows us how imperfect we are, how much we need that Savior, how much we need that Jubilee. Right? And if we start to examine any little violation of the law as a violation of all the law, it shows us just how much we need to reorder our view of justice. How do I need to reorder my view of my neighbor? How do I need to reorder my view of the people that are hurrying past the cathedral on Sunday morning so they don't have to talk to any of us? How am I reordering my view of, of um, uh, people down on King Street? or Folly Road or wherever I am, right? How am I acting toward their bodies? How am I meeting their needs? How am I loving what they love? How am I um, going after what they need or want? And it shows us just how much um, we should exhibit Jesus. Now, and I said I would do this. We've got we've to close. But I am going to... Just put up there really quickly. So this is a, a summary of the Ten Commandments as a secular version, right? So you could very easily tweak, have no other gods before me, into something that an atheist or a secular person, a non-Christian, would accept, right? No other gods before me. No graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath, right? All, like, every single one of these is accepted by non-Christians as something that is a part of their inherent ethical system, even if they couldn't delineate it. Number five, honor your parents. Number six, don't murder. Don't, don't, or, uh, don't commit adultery. And a lot of people, even if they wouldn't accept that one, right? Um, a lot of our students come from uh, unorthodox home lives, right? Even if they don't accept it, they would accept commitment, right? Especially if they're on a team. And we're challenging them to look at other people's bodies in a different way. Do not look at other people's bodies as something only for your body. You're looking at other people's bodies as the goal. Are you caring for them? Are you loving them? Are you seeking their good? And ultimately, their good is reflecting God Himself. Respect property, pursue truth. And be content, right? So all there, it's, a, it's a framework for human flourishing 
that is a, it's a summary of all of those other all of those other people, all of those other ethicists, all of those other frameworks. It's deontological, teleological, and existential. And I think now Patrick is going to take this, he's going to take the Ten Commandments, and he's now going to apply it to, uh, I think, the environment. We've already done economics. He's going to do the environment, um, sex and sexuality, and there's one more that um, I can't remember. I don't know what he was, I don't know what he's planning on. Um, it wasn't economics. Maybe it was life. Maybe it was um, maybe it was end of life specifically, uh, end of life issues or um, bioethics. So maybe it's the environment, sex, sexuality, and bioethics. Right? Looking at these as a framework for how we're to treat our neighbors and travelers, uh, gleaning laws, jubilee, hospitality laws. Keep those in mind because now he's going to unpack them. All right, we gotta we gotta wrap up. Um, let me pray, and then we can stick stick around and talk and ask questions. But let me pray for us. Mighty Lord, you are, um, you are both good and just, and you are merciful and kind and gracious, and you pile onto us exactly what we, we do not deserve. Your grace and mercy are unfair. It is unfair that any of us would be granted access into your kingdom. It is unjust that any of us would get to live in your presence. And, that's, and yet, that's exactly what we get. Please teach us how to exhibit that, that grace, that mercy to other people around us. Show us how to be just and merciful and kind to those who need it, to those who are oppressed, to those who don't have, to those who are hurting, to those who are lonely. Give us the opportunities. Throw people at us um, to, uh, to whom we can act uh, with uh, your character. Teach us how to show your character to everyone around us. Teach us how to obey your law to everybody around us. And let us teach others uh, how to not just act like you, but to, to see how acting like you brings flourishing to our communities. In your heavenly and precious holy name, amen.